morning. Good morning. I forget if I told you, Kelly was up all night taking care of the phone system and IT stuff in Marin. Uh, so he's in bed. Yes. And Zach had to go to a funeral. Anyway, this is the second anniversary of Sojourn's death. And we dedicated service to him this morning and put his picture on the altar. And I want to talk about him. The thing is, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. I want to talk about him, but I, I can't remember which stories I've already told you. So, but first I wanted to read this poem that I wrote when he died. Um, he loved to talk about the white cloud depending on the blue mountain and the blue mountain depending on the white cloud and yet they don't hinder each other. So this is a poem. All day long the white cloud depends on the blue mountain. All day long the blue mountain depends on the white cloud. Now the white dragon has flown beyond the mountain and merged with the white cloud. Free and cool the cloud mist refreshes and gladdens all being. Yet a few tears fall. And they do. His name was White Dragon. Akuryu is White Dragon, by the way. So I was feeling kind of low this morning, and finally during Zazen, I realized, oh, right, it's the second anniversary of his death. So he's with me. And the sadness is with me, too. And I, I love that. I don't know if it's a sad, I think it's out of a con. And I don't remember the source. It's, it's, it's a famous, very famous saying about the white cloud in the Blue Mountain. And he used to mention it a lot. He talked, he, he'd say it a lot, but he never explained it, which is uh, one of his best qualities in my view, that he didn't explain things. It's what I really appreciated about him. And so I keep sort of chewing on that though, that white cloud in the blue mountain. And I, I sort of understand it and I am not sure I do. And I think maybe it's what kind of thing you understand intuitively and maybe there's no point in talking about it. It's like, uh, Dogen's poem when he said, gee, I suddenly realized the other day that the snow makes the mountain. The white cloud makes the blue mountain. The blue mountain makes the white cloud. That may be literally uh, true in terms of the uh, top of the mountain in the relationship with warm air, cold air, and snow or something, but that doesn't matter. So what do you say about that? We all depend on each other. And we do hinder each other. But our, our uh, intention is to not hinder each other. And when things go smoothly, when the dreaded ego doesn't get involved, 
things do go smoothly, even when there's you know difficulty or conflict or boundaries need to be set or whatever. It's so much easier when it's not about me and mine and you and yours. It's easier. We don't hinder each other so. And we're not so hindered. I was talking to a friend the other day about, about how sensitive we can be, and Americans seem to be, to uh, criticism, that it means that you're a failure. If somebody gives you feedback, even in the, end, in the process of teaching you how to be a uh, doan for the very first time, still people seem to experience it as criticism and either get defensive or keep apologizing. And that's hindering each other. Because it's hard to learn when you're falling off on either side, when you, when you get defensive and resistant and irritated, or when you get feel so shamed that you feel the need to apologize when somebody says, oh, you missed that bell there. It's hard, it's hard to learn that way. It's also hard to teach people when they're being that way. So the blue cloud, the blue mountain, just mountains and the white cloud, just clouds. And they do go together. How often have you seen clouds seeming to be settling on a mountain? Where, where I live, I can see Mount Tam out of my kitchen window. It's often got a cloud, sometimes fog, depending on it. When I went to Nepal many years ago, we took a bus from the border with India up over a mountain pass. It wasn't the Himalayas, because the Himalayas were on the other side of the Kathmandu Valley. So we came over this pass and we started down, and I was looking across the Kathmandu Valley, and I saw what I thought were clouds on the other side. And then I realized that I did see clouds, but the clouds were below the peaks of the Himalayas. So what I was seeing was the mountain peaks so high that they were above a cumulus kind of clouds. So they depended on each other in a different way. They defined each other in a different way. Maybe that's a way of talking about it. I don't know, a way that the cloud defines the mountain, the mountain defines the cloud. But I think that's too concrete. It's not untrue, but I think maybe better to say we're all dancing together. The clouds and the mountains and us and the buildings and rivers and dogs. And Sojin is dancing too. <laughs> I don't think I ever saw him to actually dance. I saw him play music. A lot. He played the recorder, and uh, his uh, his wife Liz used to have, still has actually. Uh, she just started it up again. 
a uh, Christmas caroling party every year right before Christmas. Uh, they are both Jewish, but what the hell? She really likes the music, as do I. And uh, he would, uh, a friend would play the piano and, and Mel would play the recorder. Sometimes there'd be another person there playing the recorder too. And it was, it was beautiful. He loved Bach. And I was always very um, happy to be invited because I don't have much of a voice. They were, it was the singers and the, in the uh, singers in the Sangha that were invited. And uh, I don't know how I got invited, but I was really happy. And I tried to just, you know, sort of blend in. A friend and I, a man named Peter Overton, he and I used to sit on the couch a little bit away from everybody. They'd all be gathered around the piano. And so uh, you, you wouldn't hear me. I think Peter sang okay, I don't really remember. But um, I know that I was happy to not be right in the middle of it. But I depended on that. And I certainly depended on hearing him play. He used to play at uh, skit nights, too, at Tassajara and I think at Berkeley. And I, I define it for those who may be listening in the future, because everybody that's right here right now knows what skit night is. Anyway, it's usually in the middle of a practice period, and it's a time, it's a time when people get together and uh, the, in the practice period get together and uh, entertain each other, I guess. And sometimes there are skits and sometimes people play music and sometimes people read poems. And one time here, not so long ago, somebody, we were studying the poem of the, the Grass Hut and uh, she, right in front of us, did a sume painting of a grass hut. So that's Anything can happen in skit night, and with us, it's usually the end of a practice period, and so people are expressing their understanding of whatever we've been studying. And maybe skit night makes a practice period. Then a practice period makes skit night. And Sojin made my practice. I met him. I don't know, early on, I started sitting almost immediately at Berkeley after I did a weekend introduction at Green Gulch with Yvonne Rand. And eventually I met him and eventually I started doing Doksan with him probably about six months after I started, I don't know. And very quickly it became clear that he was my teacher. And he wasn't the kind of person that that marked it. He didn't do teacher-student ceremonies or any of that kind of thing. Frankly, he actually, he just assumed that anybody that came in the door and kept going at Berkeley Zen Center was his student, which was not totally accurate, but pretty much accurate. And it was certainly accurate about me. And an example of his not explaining things that, you know, my parents uh, were dying and died, you know, within a year after I started practice. And my mother was uh, 
diagnosed with terminal cancer and she was in hospice, I think in November of 88, something like that. She died in the beginning of January of 89. So somewhere in there, it was very real. And then, and then after she died, uh, my father declined pretty quickly and he died in May. So somewhere in there, we, we were, we talked about death a lot, but, um, uh, he said to me, you might take a look at case 55 in the Blue Cliff record. And that's all he said. And then, of course, I did. And I suppose in that way, you know, the, the teacher made the student, the student made the teacher. I, I, I did go and look. That was the kind of student I was that I would go and look. I mean, there are people that you could say that to and they would not go look. So whatever that means. So I went and I looked and of course that's alive or dead. And um, I've told you before, um, but not in talking about Sojin, so you may not remember, I don't know when, but I'll tell you again anyway. Cornelia hasn't heard this. <laughs> um, you know, I kept reading it, you know, and the teacher, the student says, you know, it hits a coffin and says, alive or dead, teacher, I have to know. And the teacher says, I won't say. And they go back and forth a little and they still, I won't say. And then they're heading back to the monastery and the student suddenly stops and says, I have to know, teacher, alive or dead, you have to tell me. And the teacher says, I won't say. And the student says, if you don't tell me, I'm going to hit you. The teacher says, if, if you must, then hit me, but I won't say. And the student does hit him. And then the teacher sends him away because if he, they go back to the monastery and the other monks see the teacher with a black eye, the student's going to be in deep trouble. So he sends the student away. And then eventually, of course, the student understands. But he didn't say anything to me about it. And I, obviously it was about death and dying, but I couldn't, I, I couldn't understand it. And I kept thinking, how mean that teacher is, how mean, how come he doesn't say? It's not that he says, I can't say, he says, I won't say. It just seems so rude to me and mean. And then one day, back in the olden days when I used to get permanence, I was sitting in the back of the beauty salon, you know, waiting for some part of the process to do its thing. And I was sitting in a chair somewhat away from everybody else. And I read it over. I just kept reading it. I kept thinking, there's got to be something here besides a mean teacher. So I just kept reading it. And, um, and I, so I pulled it out and read it again. And, and it just hit me. And my impulse was to throw the book across the room, which I didn't do. But that was the feeling of it. And it just hit me that there's that it was that there's you just have to accept it. There's nothing to say. And I continued working with it and I had other insights about it and so on. But 
there's nothing to say. And he and I, it wasn't that we talked about the koan so much, but we talked about the various the insights that I had had and, and so on. We talked about death and dying a lot. But I depended on him, and he depended on me. He said once that it was interesting working with me, and I, <laughs> I immediately um, was a little uh, hurt and a little offended because so often we use the word, we say, you know, we, you know the air quotes, whatever, yeah, it's really, it's interesting, you know, which is what you say when something is uh, like bad art or uh, somebody is doing something that you, you kind of disapprove of, but you don't want to say it explicitly. So you say, well, that's interesting. So I immediately thought he, he was telling me that I was a jerk, which was our relationship for quite a while, you know, that kind of thing. And of course it did, he, he noticed, I guess my face probably changed and he noticed and he said, no, I don't mean that. I don't remember the words he said, but basically, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, it's, it is actually interesting working with you. So that was nice to hear once I, once I uh, let go of my own ego uh, response. And I think that the fact that if he said that about a koan, I went and looked at it and, and persisted, that made him a teacher. and me a student. And when he was dying, we talked about it at one point, not about that particularly, but I said something about that. It seemed that my MO was, was to, when he said X or Y, was to not to get into a discussion about it so much, but to go away and chew on it. And he said that was, that was his experience too. I wish now, one of my regrets, I don't lose sleep over this, but I wish I had asked him more questions, particularly. He said that standing up, you know, when you've done a full bow, standing up was mostly a matter of balance. And so I started working with it and trying to stand up without using my hands. And I never asked him what he meant. And it was what, within this last year, that I noticed and realized that if you keep your head back, it's much easier to stand up because we tend to have the head fall forward and it's really heavy. And then you have to balance it by sticking your butt up in the air, which is not too attractive. So, uh, so it's, it's amazing how much easier it is to stand up when you your head back. And that's probably what he meant, but I'll never know. I finally, I finally got it, but I wasted like, what, 20 years or something, maybe longer. But mostly I think it was useful and especially he gave me koans and when it, it weren't things to talk about. And he was there if there was a problem. He gave me, what is it? And then I started 
and not too long after that, I think, I started at Tassajara, and I was practicing with it as Norman taught me, which was to say it on every breath. And I sat Zazen, and I fell apart. He was gone. He wasn't. He was in Berkeley at the time. He used to leave for a week or two during practice periods because he, Daniel, his son, was home and his aunt, son was pretty young back then. So he would spend some time there. And also, of course, he was also the abbot of the Berkeley Zen Center. At any rate, he wasn't there. And I took to my bed and Leslie was very sympathetic and I didn't understand what was going on. I just, I just knew I felt sort of, I don't know, freaked out. I wasn't clear that I had a cold or anything. And then he came back a couple of days later and, um, and I went to see him very soon after he got back and I told him what was going on and he said, you're pushing too hard. So he, that was sort of tough love, I guess, but he took care of me and, 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 uh, and I realized he was right. It was easy to push too hard at Dasara. Not that there's anything else to do. <laughs> anyway, uh, and uh, he, uh, he changed my con. I don't usually talk about this much, but um, I mean, not. I'm going to say this in two parts because the first thing I want to say is we used to laugh a lot. So I'm not talking about the laughing, but I don't talk about my koan practice much. Anyway, he said, "I'm going to change your koan. It's now not what is it anymore. It's this is it." And we both laughed because it seems to me that that just begs the same question. You could say, what is this? And at the same time, it, it, um, it lightened it up for me and helped me to relax a little and stop pushing so hard. So he was, he was paying attention and he was there when I, when I needed him. I felt great trust from him, a trust in me. And as my analyst said to me once about him, that he sees, she said, he sees a strength in you that you don't see. And that was true. And eventually, I'd say I, uh, I grew up in relation to him. And the relationship became more equal as it should. Now, I wouldn't say I surpassed him. <laughs> and I don't, I don't practice the same way he did. I don't talk the same way he did. And I do feel like I grew up in relation to him. And that's, that's the job 
of the student and teacher for that matter. Sometimes we say the student needs to work through a transference in relation to a teacher. It was good, you know, he, he basically stopped going to the Berkeley Zen Center pretty much the last, oh, I don't know, few months. He, he, you know, he, he had surgery and he was on chemo and it was, he did pretty well for a while and then it came back. The cancer came back and they said that there was one kind of chemo he might try, but it was a very, very um, difficult kind of chemo and it might, it, it wasn't like a, you know, 80% chance it would work or anything. And, and um, he, his uh, advisors, there were doctors in the Sangha, basically, they, they told him they thought he should not do it. And that his regular oncologist was not by any means urging him to do it. And uh, he wanted to do it and he tried it. And I guess he sort of proved to himself that it was not worth it. And so he stopped and then, and then um, began the process of turning towards actually dying. And so people like me, you know, would, would uh, go and talk to him. And I don't know, I would just go talk to him about whatever and just have tea and occasionally sort of check in about something from the past maybe. And then when he was actively dying, he was in a hospital bed in the dining room. Their dining room is open to the living room, sort of like here, but bigger. And uh, from where the way he was lying, he could see out the front window. And it was winter. And you could see the sunset behind the bare branches of a maple tree on their in their front yard. That was quite beautiful. The light there. And he was mostly quiet then. We talked a tiny bit. And uh, I would, you know, not hold his hand but just touch it, which is sort of hospice training. And he might say what was going on with him. And it was very, it was very peaceful and it felt, it felt really good to be able to be there and support him in that process. And really be supported too, just to be there, to be able to be there and uh, be useful. Then uh, when people would come and sit with him then Liz would go walk the dog or um, go to the store and so on, or maybe just have some time to herself. And after he died, um, you know, people, there were, there were, I don't know how many people, five people, something like that, uh, were called. And, you know, most of them lived much closer than I did. So they were there and they, they, um, they did a little service and chanted the Daisha Narani. And I think they helped. Um, dress him, I don't know. By the time I got there, he had on his very fancy nine Joe Okesa, his green, sleeve foam green Okesa, and 
and uh, he was all laid out and they were surrounded by flowers. And uh, we sat around him and just and chatted and, and Liz and his cousin and his cousin's wife were there. And I, it was my, had been my turn. We had been making like soup for her just, you know, to have, to have for her to have something to eat and, and uh, to support her. And then uh, they were there when it was my turn to bring the soup and I'd already made it. So I thought, well, I'll bring it. So I walk in with this big pot and she had said recently that she was hoping for more uh, vegetarian or fish stuff. And, and so I had made a vegetarian stew and uh, it was one of those things always oh, serendipitous. I, I walk in and she, and I said to her, I brought you some stew. And um, uh, I think she asked, I don't know, she, is it vegetarian? And I said, yes. And she was so happy because the cousin and his wife were vegetarians. So, and they were all starving. So it's one of those things that happens. That was nice. And they didn't know they were depending on me. <laughs> I didn't know they were depending on me in that way, but it turned out we defined each other in that moment. So he's always here and I'll always miss him. And it's simpler now. So I have to digress and remember that Blanche had a story of, of uh, Oksan, uh, Suzuki Roshi's widow, um, come, going down to Tassajara and and they she and Blanche walked up to the memorial site so she could say hello to Suzuki Roshi and she used to go and sort of talk and tell him the news which Blanche then continued after Oksan left and I continued while I could and um, anyway so uh, as they're going up there uh, Oksan said to Blanche you know he's a much better husband now say that Mel is a better teacher now, but it is less complicated because <laughs> we used to irritate each other every so often. And I think that's enough for me. Do you have any questions or comments or Cornelia, do you want to share any memories of him? Um, I wish I had known him better, more. I knew him just a little bit. And I wish I had lived closer to Berkeley, so I could have been more in contact with the Berkeley Zen Center with him. I'm sorry I didn't know him better. I did, uh, uh, he, for several years, he used to do um, a, like a workshop at Tassajara talking about Suzuki Roshi. And I attended the last one he did. Hmm. And there was no particular program. He was just talking and uh, remembering what Suzuki Roshi had taught him. And it was, I don't want to say it was interesting, but um, it was fascinating. I hung on every word that he said. Yeah, it's, it's so, it was wonderful when he did that. It was, yes. that was our history, yeah. you know? which is part of why I'm doing what I'm doing yeah. about him. This is, this is 
this is our history too. Anything else? Steve, are you, I don't, it looks like you're reading something. So I'm, I don't know if, if there's something that you want to Sorry, Sorry, I, um, I thought I remembered seeing something in the Berkeley um, Zen Center newsletter about Sojin's legacy. And I'm not sure I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to give up finding it, but um, Hosan wrote something to the effect that um, that the strength of the Sangha and the way it's organized still continues um, even through the uh, the pandemic and um, Mel's death and that um, it just, it felt like Hosan was saying that the legacy is still there and um, mm -hmm. that the strength is still there because of him. Mm -hmm. oh. Yeah, he did say that, but he didn't talk about him that much. And then they, they, they announced they were going to have the the Berkeley part of the interment of his ashes today, but they postponed it for a week because it's supposed to rain pretty heavily though. They might've been able, who knows if they could have made it or not. These are numberless, I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Karma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to become it. Beings are numberless. I vow to save them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I am out to be coming.